0: And it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it
1: in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrushed.
0: And I was really interested
2: in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis.
1: We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right.
3: Think Health.
0: On 2SCR 107.3. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. Welcome to Think Health on 2SCR and Around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Today on the show...
3: For a percentage of students that may be a motivating thing, but there's also the ones when they're getting these messages from the school and that's taking them to the other kind of level beyond the threshold of stress.
0: Are schools putting too much pressure on students to perform well in the HSC? And a new program offering support to parents with children with a developmental disability. But first, not very often is it that a new field emerges in the world of medical science, let alone one to this scale.
2: Joshua Chow... Hi, my name is Joshua Chow, and I'm a lecturer here
0: at UTS and also the Program Director for Biomedical Engineering. He is one of the figureheads for something called mechanobiology here in Australia, which understands the body as a dynamic system, measured by the mechanical forces which form it, your heartbeat, your blood pressure, signals being sent to the brain. Josh says with mechanobiology being adopted in practice... It can teach us even more about our cells and tissues, and potentially provide insights into treatments for things like cancer. He also believes mechanobiology is only possible now, as old models of how we understand the functions of our body become obsolete, as new research swells and begins to take over what are some of these soon to be obsolete models?
2: So, for example, um, very basic. Um, we do a lot of cell culture. Basically, we put the cells on a plate, and you know, we do out certain treatments on it. But it does not reflect your body. Your body's dynamic. You have blood flow. You have gravity pulling on the cells, and you know, you have a lot of interactions. And people are starting to realize that, you know, for example, in drug development, when you're testing drugs on these cells in cell culture, it often
0: does not reflect the actual outcome. So this is where that gap is filling in. Just imagine for a second I'm 10 years old, which <laughs> I think parallels probably my understanding of cell science, <laughs> like the nucleus and the cell yep. walls. How would you explain mechanobiology to me? You're playing in the playground. You know, you
2: have kids who just stand there and also kids who jump around. So a cell that is on the, just a plate is the kid that's just standing there. He's stagnant. He's not moving or anything. And we can still see the kid and how he functions and everything, but compared to the kid who's jumping and running around, it will be completely different. Um, his response, he's going to be sweating, he's going to have increased heartbeat. You will see that there's a difference, and that's where mechanobiology comes in, the difference in the cells when it's under mechanical stimulation. And what is this stimulation? It's so, this naturally happening? Yes, yes. So, for example, your heartbeat, you know, it's always pumping, right? It's always beating. That's a, that's a mechanical uh, stimulation. Your lungs, it's always expanding and contracting. Your, um, your blood is always flowing. So your you know, blood vessels, all the cells in there also feels that force. So it's like I said, it's a very dynamic environment inside your body. So for scientists, our research must mimic that as closely as possible if we want to have a realistic response from the cells or tissues um, to either treatments of drug or how we're studying it. Understanding it as a mechanical force, what do you then do with that? Once we understand how the cells respond to mechanical forces, we can develop more um, realistic experiments or models. So for example, um, organs on chip. So this is a very big thing right now. So the FDA has started trialing this for future um, testing of drugs or anything. These organs on chip basically try to mimic um, this mechanical environment where your cells is. So right now we have, you know, heart on chip, lung on chip. Um, what does that mean? So literally, we try to make like a lung or a heart on like a small device. And basically, it does all that expansion, contraction, and the heart beating as well. So it really replicates what, your, what those organs are.
0: Like a chip, like a yeah. microchip.
2: Yeah, microchip. Are they literally like lung cells or yes. something that you're putting yeah. on there? So we're, now that we know more about you know, the lungs, for example, lung anatomy, we can you know, see you know, different layers of different lung cells so that they can mimic that barrier in, in the lung. And that way, now that we have a model that mimics these organs, we're able to do drug testing. So for example, now that we have the basics of a lung on chip, now we're looking at cancers in lung. On the chip, right. so we can study it in its more dynamic environment.
0: So, are you, for example, like experimenting by
2: inserting a cancer cell? Yes. yes. So we're in purposely inducing the cancer um, on on this chip, and then we'll, we look at it. And what does it look like? Physically, probably not so much, but um on the genetic um on a protein level, so more looking at how its genetic is changing and how 's it affecting and spreading um, so in terms of visualization we 're looking at how it spreads how it's, how it 's causing its harm, you know how does it get bigger, and how does the tumor get get so big essentially and what scale
0: are we talking here
2: so we 're talking at the micron scale, so that 's probably like. Uh, one
0: hundredth of the tip of a human hair. Pretty much. <laughs> that's crazy. I don't know how you can, like, operate in a scale so tiny.
2: Yeah. No, like I said, you know, technology has really caught up, and th- that's why I think mechanical biology is only a- allowed to emerge now is because the technology allows us to do these things at such a small scale
0: uh, where previously we couldn't do before. So you've got your chip you 've got your faux lung and you 've put on your cancer cell there to see how it interacts yes. to to get to point of looking at innovation in treatment or mm. or the next step here. What do you what do you do from that point? Of
2: course. Um, so if so the idea is that if we study how cancer spreads, for example, in the lung, then we can detect, you know, the early stages of its invasion of your of the lung. And from that we can try to identify markers um, that your that the cell sends out or releases into its environment and therefore we can try to develop early detection kits. So everyone right now is trying to develop these devices where we can detect cancer, for example, at an early stage so that we can try to treat it earlier and therefore, you know, hopefully cure um, the disease from the patient.
0: And so cancer is a massive one. Absolutely. Are there any other, I guess, just diseases or disorders that you can also identify in this mechanobiology?
2: Yes, yes. I mean, obviously everyone, you know, is very big on cancer and that's, you know, kind of paving the way. But of course, you know, for diabetes and for me, working in the bone area, osteoporosis. And also, I think the idea is even though, you know, cancer is a big thing, but just even for general health. You know, how's your body performing on a daily basis? It's obviously an area that we want to ultimately reach, you know, because now we have lots of apps that, you know, records, you know, how how we're doing each day. So uh, ideally, into the future, we want to be able to
0: monitor our, you know, everyday health. And this is a step towards that this chip itself, because Mm. you want to understand those mechanical forces Mm. at work in cells and tissue. What's in this chip? What is this chip made of? This chip is basically
2: just simply made of um, biomedical silicon.
0: Right. And putting it onto this silicon chip Mm. as opposed to a petri dish and doing this, why do it this way? Because of the fluid pump. So on, on a petri dish,
2: it's just is stagnant. You know, you, you add the media, you know, which is where cells get their food, I guess, mm-hmm. um, but they just stay idle on, onto the dish. But with the chip, you're constantly pumping fluids through it. So it's just it's feeling that fluid flow and also the fluid shear stress. And that's what mimics that mechanical environment
0: there's one immunotherapy or one drug that has just been approved yes. under the U.S. Uh, I think FDA, I think. Yeah, FDA. So that's showing that there's actual, you know, follow-up from yeah. this research.
2: In terms of immunotherapy, it's not that we. The drug was developed because of this. It was developed based on the understanding from a biology. So in terms of cancer, you know, um, what we're doing is trying to actually study how it moves, how it interacts with each other. Because if you think about it, normally when we find out that we have cancer, it's because a tumor has grown to a certain size and we can actually see it. But by that time, it's kind of already too late because your cancer is already spreading through your body. So what we're trying to do is understand how does cancer you know, it starts off small, you know, one or two cells, but then it grows in to this critical mass. So that's kind of the questions that we're looking at. You know, how does cancer fuel its environment and what triggers these orders for it to spread out and start to invade? So it's that, that interaction that we're looking at. So, for example, like morning peak hour train rides, crammed in there with a lot of people and you're like oh my god i'm gonna die in here you know so that's kind of the feeling that cells get too Um, they can sense that critical mass you know that having so much cells around them they also want to die as well but cancer operates differently so we really want to know what makes how it feels its environment and from there we can do more targeted therapies
0: joshua chow lecturer in the school of life sciences and director of biomedical engineering at the university of technology sydney You're listening to Think Health on 2SER and around Australia on the Community Radio Network. With one week left of HSE examinations, Year 12 students are either done and dusted with their secondary studies or eagerly awaiting their last exam to be over. And although these final school tests are bound to make everyone feel a little on edge, for some, the pressure to do well can have serious impacts on both their mental and physical health. Louise Raymond is from the Health Psychology Unit at the University of Technology, Sydney, and Louise does a lot of work going into schools and speaking with students about stress management. I started off by asking Louise what happens when the stress takes over.
3: What we find is that, you know, most students obviously find this a fairly stressful year and it peaks and troughs often, you know, say when there's a whole lot of assessments due or when the exams are about to come up. But there is a certain proportion of people who, for them, it will kind of go to the next level. And for us, we know that people who are experiencing chronic high levels of stress over a long period can start to experience some of those more significant issues that can go into things like more significant anxiety or depression. So we would be looking at things like a change in your functioning. So difficulty concentrating, difficulty doing your schoolwork, change in your distress levels. So feeling upset all the time, feeling overwhelmed all the time, changes in how you're going physically. So it might be difficulty sleeping, insomnia, wanting to sleep all the time, changes in appetite and also changes in how you're enjoying things in life. So, it may be that you love going out with your friends or going to a party or doing your sport, but you're losing interest in that and losing enjoyment in that.
0: Is this most commonly related to kids who might be trying really hard at their HSC? Like, they're the ones who are stressed because they want to achieve the highest marks and get into a particular university degree. What about the students who say publicly, like, oh, I'm not interested, I don't care, But I imagine there would be a culture of stress around them. So maybe they're, they're not telling that they are, but in fact, they're freaking out inside.
3: You're absolutely right. And one of the things I always say to students is the HSC does not happen in isolation. It's in a context. So you're not just looking at exams and assessments, but, you know, often there's a whole lot of other things going on in your life. There might be issues at home with family. You might be having issues with friends. You might be having problems with your boyfriend or girlfriend so often the HSC is happening within that context so yes there's a proportion of students say those you know who may be at some of the selective schools or have a lot of pressure on themselves to succeed academically and they have very high marks that they're wanting to achieve in particular university course they want to achieve so they may be feeling the pressure from that aspect but also some of the people who are not necessarily such high achievers also talk about feeling stress and pressures and those pressures may be coming from themselves so I should be able to do better where am I going to end up if I can't achieve at this what am I going to be achieving at it may be coming from parents who are saying look pull up your socks you haven't been doing anything this is really important and then I've also been at schools where I listen to the teachers at school saying look you know in terms of our overall school marks everyone's marks count, so your marks can affect someone else's ranking. So even if you're not particularly caring about it, if you don't put effort into it and do well, then you may drag down someone else in terms of their ultimate ATAR marks and and the effect it has on that in terms of their rankings.
0: Obviously, a school would be responsible or have services, should you know, any of their students be stressed during this time. But do you think schools are also responsible for creating that culture for that discourse around, you were just saying there that sometimes they're like, hey, your marks matter, it boosts the entire school up. Mm, like, mm. is that such an effective method if you want your students to succeed?
3: Well, it's an interesting thing. And I've I've spoken to a few different people about this, because as I said, I have seen that, but I've also seen the flip side of it, where they are really trying to tell their students, put in perspective. And I think from my own experience, what seems to happen at some schools is you've got a cohort of 200 students and potentially for a percentage of students, that may be a motivating thing. But there's also often the students that I'm seeing are the ones who are already motivated and when they're getting these messages from the school then that's taking them to the other kind of level beyond the threshold of stress because then they're feeling like I'm doing everything I can but now the school's basically saying I need to be doing more and I really need to think about the impact I could have on the school's reputation if I don't do well and for some of them that can be really counterproductive because it's causing their stress levels to go over that kind of curve where it's helpful. So in terms of stress and performance we always say you know there's there is a bit of a bell curve. If you have no stress, chances are you're not going to perform at your best because a little bit of stress can actually be energising and motivating. So we say to students, you know, all of you are going to have your peak level where you're feeling energised, where you're feeling like this is important and that helps you to perform at your best. But as you go over that bell curve, the other side is that sometimes too much stress, feeling overwhelmed can actually start impacting on your performance and your functioning
0: I guess for you, going into schools and in terms of management strategies for stress, not just within the HSE but applicable in other areas of life, mm. what, do, what do you see students respond to?
3: We very much talk about a very practical approach to psychology which is called cognitive behaviour therapy and you're right that cognitive behaviour therapy is about equipping yourself with strategies to manage a whole lot of stresses and pressures and situations that can happen in your life for everyone, so it's not just HSE related. The basic principle of that is that the way we react to situations or the things that happen to us is a lot to do with what we think about them, what we say to ourselves about them. So for example, if you're going into an HSC exam and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to fail at this, I can't do this, it's all too much, then Chad's say you're going to feel highly anxious and stressed and that may affect your ability to concentrate and how you ultimately go with it. Another person walks into that same exam and they're thinking this is going to be hard I'm just going to do my best, all I can do at this point is what I can do and ultimately if it doesn't work out as I want it to, there'll be other pathways, then they're going to feel moderately stressed but hopefully be able to get through that a bit better. So trying to look at the situations or think about the situations in a kind of balanced, constructive way. So we're not saying just look at it positively and you'll be fine and it's all great. We're just saying let's look at this rather than potentially catastrophizing it's going to be disaster look at it in a balanced way it's one step towards many different opportunities
0: do you find it's the case though as always easier said than done
3: absolutely (laughs) absolutely and i guess that's why when we're doing the hsc stress management programs if you try to implement these earlier on then chances are you're more likely to do them but i also think that You know, sometimes we just say to students, why don't you give this a go for a week and just see how you get on and whether it makes a difference. So an example, sitting down then to do some homework and then being distracted by your phone all the time or getting on social media. So one of the experiments that I say for an hour each day when I'm doing that, I just have the phone out of reach or on flight mode so that I'm not getting constantly pulled into it.
0: Sounds a lot like me at work.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like most of us, I think. You know, obviously, when that anxiety is rising or the stress is rising, anything that's a temporary relief is going to help you feel better in the moment. So checking something on social media or watching a funny cat video, you're going to momentarily <laughs> feel better. But at the end of the day, the work's still there. And that's one of the procrastination factors that can lead to the chronic stress over time.
0: Louise Raymond, clinical psychologist in the health psychology unit at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. The Triple P Positive Parenting Program aims to equip parents with strategies to build strong and healthy relationships with their children. Running for more than 35 years across 25 countries, the program is planning to extend its reach with Stepping Stones, a program aimed particularly at parents with children with a developmental disability. Sheena Arora from the University of Technology, Sydney, is conducting an economic evaluation of the program for her PhD, and she says it could fill an important gap for parents who have often found themselves alone and struggling to care for their child's needs.
1: A lot of the parents that attend are parents that have um, children with, say, autism spectrum disorders or fragile X syndrome or Down syndrome. They're some of the common disorders that we see, but really it's open to anyone who has a child with a disability. We're looking at sort of kids in the age range of maybe 2 to 10, 12 years old. And in terms of when they participate, it's really up to them if they feel like they need help.
0: So the Stepping Stones project in particular is an extension upon the Triple P program? That's right.
1: Yeah, so it's a new program. So it's built on the same principles as the Triple P program, but it's really tailored to meet the specific needs of families that have disabilities. At the top of the program, there's a media strategy which reaches out to all parents. So you might see an ad on the side of the bus, probably not at this stage, but eventually maybe you might see an ad on the side of the bus. And then it goes through different levels where if you have kids with really high needs, you might receive a more intensive program where you might work one-on-one with a practitioner. You might see them 10 times one-on-one until you see the desired results.
0: What does stepping stones provide that the Triple P might not? Um, So
1: it's really about those specific materials so the tip sheets and stuff like that that the parents have access to which are really tailored towards their specific needs but the other thing that's really important is that the practitioners that deliver this program to the families are specifically trained in this program so they know all about the disabilities and the specific needs of these families so when you're working with a practitioner they can really understand your problems and where you're coming from.
0: And what's your role in all of this? You're coming from, I guess, a health economics side. How do you interplay in this project?
1: Yeah, so my specific role is actually looking at the economic evaluation of the program. So by that I mean I'm looking at the costs and the benefits of the program and having a look at how these compare to each other. So, for example, some of the things I'm looking at are Does a parent take more or less absences from work after receiving the program? So an example of this might be that it's really common that kids who have these disabilities exhibit what we call behavioural and emotional problems where the kids have disruptive behaviours. This might be aggression or it might be biting or a whole range of problems. So an example of how this might affect a parent's productivity is that they might get a phone call one day saying, oh, you need to come pick up your child from school because they've been biting another child. So they have to rush off and leave their job and as a result they have to take an absence from work. And if we can work on improving those behaviours, then parents might not have to take so much leave from work. So that's an example of some of the more economic-y, I suppose, outcomes that we're looking at.
0: And how do you do that? How do you gather that information?
1: So for this program, it's part of a broader research program. So these parents are actually being asked to fill out quite detailed questionnaires. So they fill in a questionnaire before they receive the program and then they fill in a questionnaire after they receive the program. And we look at any changes that may have happened in between.
0: Do we have a program similar to one that is honing in on this particular focus? You were talking about really having that kind of like engagement between family and child and practitioner. Do we have something aside from Triple P, which from my understanding is a bit broader, that we've looked to maybe elsewhere overseas?
1: Yeah, so that's actually why this program is so innovative, because for this group of people, really, so when we're looking at kids that have a disability and also have these behavioural and emotional problems, really their only option in terms of treatment is seeing a psychiatrist or psychologist, which is quite a targeted intervention. So these kids often don't actually seek access to the help. We know that with kids who have even severe behavioural and emotional problems, only 10% of people actually seek help. So having a program that is much more widely available to people, we hope that more people will actually seek help and get the care that they need.
0: You were talking about how um, kind of in the economic analysis of this project, looking to absences, there must be so many threads for you to look at. How much money would be invested here? Where it needs to go there? How parents might be affected in that way, trying to take time out from work? How do you weave all these different threads together to know how much a program like this might cost? And the roll on effects from that, like parents having to take absences.
1: Yeah, so it's, I mean, that's why it's such a challenging area to look at, is because when you're looking at something like children with a disability, the outcomes that you might see across such a broad range of things you might see parents taking less absences, you might see things like caregivers having less stress, you might see outcomes like the children actually having less disruptive behaviours. So the outcomes are really varied and why this has become a PhD in such a big project is because we've got so many things to look at. Some of the other things we're looking at are do the medications, number of medications that the children take increase or decrease after taking the program? Um, right. There's a whole wide range of things we're looking at and some of those things have an economic impact some of those are less tangible, like the caregiver stress that we, it's hard to place a dollar value on, but it doesn't mean that they're not important. They're just things that we need to consider or governments need to consider when they're deciding how to invest that money.
0: Are you also finding by looking into all of these areas that you kind of assumed didn't cost money before are costing money, like you know about that, I guess, medication effectiveness, whether or not that's working... Is an, is an obvious one, but others maybe not so, and you're like, more money is being sucked up in this area.
1: Yeah, so one really interesting example uh, that we found so far is that when you're looking at economics, really the objective is to reduce the amount of money spent, is the whole aim. But there are other things that are important. So one really interesting example that we've come across is that when we were looking at how many services caregivers access, so things like access to various support groups and things like that. We actually found that after the program, caregivers actually accessed respite care and support groups more often than they did prior to receiving the program. So when you look at the cost of this, this actually represents a cost to the government or to society, which doesn't look nice on a piece of paper. But actually, we're really helping these families and they're accessing more services that are going to really help them in the future. So we have to look at things holistically. So while economics is important, we need to make sure that we're looking at things from the bigger perspective as well.
0: Sheena Arora, Research Officer in the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you subscribe to us. We are available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. All you need to do is search for Think Health. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps us get discovered. This show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER and is heard on community radio network stations around Australia. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next week.